Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll read verses uh, 1 through 6. We, we focus just on the first verse, and as we'll see here today, Paul begins a thought in verse 1, and then verses 2 through really 13 are this, is this digression. It's like he's writing the letter, and all of a sudden a thought strikes him, and he goes down this path kind of explaining about his role as an apostle, explaining what he's been tasked with, and then he picks up the thought that he started with in verse 14. But for today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. So turn your attention to the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's pray. O gracious God, let this revelation of the mystery of your gospel awaken our hearts and mind and stir us to praise and glory in the power, the grace, and the compassion of you. I ask that in the preaching of this sermon today, Father, the word of God would be magnified, the people of God would be edified, and the Son of God would be glorified. Amen. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, a a young, freshly engaged couple full of all the excitement of being engaged, and the the fiancé, the groom-to-be, comes to the bride-to-be, and he says, I've got a secret to tell you. And she giggles and says, oh, what is it? And he says, I'm in love with you. I love you so much. And they get married and they have, you know, their first anniversary and everything's been wonderful the first year of the honeymoon phase. And they're out to a nice dinner and he says, I've got a secret. And she says, oh, what is it? And he reveals to her, I love you. I'm mad about you. And then a few years go by and she's had a few children They've gotten a little bit wiser. They've gone through some tough times, and they're at home exhausted, sitting on the couch. The children are finally asleep, and he just leans over, and he says, I got a secret to tell you. And there's no giggling anymore. She goes, what? He says, I love you. I'm mad about you. And the same couple experiences the same secret telling and revelation of a mystery and then they are in their 80s with grandchildren surrounded, surrounding them and, and their loved ones there celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary or something. And amidst all the joy of the, these children and grandchildren, the husband leans over to his wife of 50 years and says, I've got a secret to tell you. And this time she doesn't sigh, she doesn't giggle. She looks at him knowing what he's about to say and she says, what is it? And he goes, I love you, and I'm mad about you. Now, this, this might not seem too mysterious, right? The, the love a husband would have for his wife. But for anyone that's been married, and for anyone that has seen couples married for a long time, it is a mystery. It's a profound mystery that is revealed over and over and over again of faithfulness. 
to each other, of love shared to each other. I've never known a wife to be tired of hearing her husband say, I love you, I'm mad about you. And Paul talks about the marriage between a husband and wife as a mystery that somehow relates to the church, between the relationship between Christ and the church. And that comes in a couple of chapters. But right here we see him pick up this theme. There is a mystery to the gospel that is revealed to us. And it's a profound mystery, and it is, it's supposed to astonish the whole world. And so that is what we are going to explore today, the mystery of this gospel that is revealed at exactly the right moment in God's sovereign plan that we should never grow weary or tired of having revealed to us. And I actually think we will forget and be reminded of, and that's what makes it all the more wonderful and more worthy of praise and adoration is we get to experience renewed sense and revelation of what this mystery is. And so Paul begins, before he gets into this mystery, by explaining that this mystery has been stewarded. That's the language he uses in verse 2. He's, he's just reminded the Ephesians that he's in prison, and it's mostly sort of their fault. It's because he loves them, it's because he cared for them, and it's also pretty strong reason because he brought an Ephesian with him when he went to Jerusalem and got into some trouble there between a misunderstanding. But he's referencing that, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You see, Paul, when he is given the task of preaching to the Gentiles, he shares about this during his trial, which we referenced briefly last week, but in Acts 26, he, he says it before King Agrippa, and he says, uh, this is the word of the Lord that came to Paul, and it said to him, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and seen of me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul had a, a special task to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's given this by revelation. I mean, he doesn't figure this part out from the scriptures necessarily. He doesn't, we know in his prior life, his interpretation of the scriptures led him to persecute the church. It was his zealousness for God's law and his hatred towards the Gentiles that oppressed him and killed his people that led him to persecute the church. But Paul now is saying, I am a steward of this grace to you. And it doesn't come from me. It doesn't, it doesn't, I didn't come up with this idea of going to you, but God himself and Jesus Christ appeared to me and commissioned me. And since I have that commission, not only do you, do you have to listen to me because of the authority given to me, but I, hope, I am hoping you are listening to me by my sacrifice for you. Right? This is not a letter of introduction. Paul has spent years prior spending time in Ephesus with the people. He then left for years planting other churches, and now he is imprisoned because of the commission, because of the stewardship that the Lord gave him. Think about that. The Lord called him to do this, 
And the Lord oversaw that he would be imprisoned for this, and Paul doesn't bat an eye. Imprisonment? Fine. If it's for the Gentiles that you've called me to, Lord, amen. But it's not just Paul. It's not just him that stewarded this gospel to us. In verse 5, you see, he's talking about the mystery that which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And if you remember a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2.20, when we were talking about God himself building the household of God, combining Jews and Gentiles now because of the work of Christ on the cross, in verse 20, he said that the building, the structure, this new temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We have this apostolic ministry of God-appointed called leaders to a particular office of the apostleship that were sent to plant churches, to oversee these churches, to delegate teaching, to ordain elders and send them out to churches, and this office of prophet, which was still existing at the time of the New Testament, to encourage the saints in what was happening, to continue to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ, to continue to provide guidance and wisdom about what God has done in Jesus for the world now. It's not just Paul. In fact, in a couple of verses, he's going to say, I'm not even that, like, the big-time apostle, right? If we're going to talk about the big guys, we're going to, let's talk about Peter, who in Acts 10, just like Paul, you know, Peter had a struggle with what is God's Spirit doing in the world that he's telling me to go to Cornelius's house, who's a Gentile, and hang out with him, and all of a sudden, the Gentiles gathered there received the Holy Spirit. God is at work in the world doing something, and Peter didn't expect it. The church is confounded by this, and they have Peter come back. And Acts 11 could be one of the most boring chapters in Scripture because it repeats almost everything that happened in Acts 10. Peter's basically just saying, yeah, I went to this house, and you know, the, the Lord appeared to me about uh, all foods being clean, and then I'm getting summoned to this house, and the Holy Spirit falls— and, Gentiles, they're getting all these blessings that we thought was just going to be for us as Jews of the people of God. They're part of the people of God. And eventually we, we have the Jerusalem Council where the apostles gather because this was so astounding. This was such a, a big revelation that the Gentiles would, would not just be part of the people of the God, but that they would be fully part of the people of God, that it was causing division. And the Jerusalem Council says that this is good. This is what Christ has ordained and done. Praise be to God. Continue on in this work. And they set Paul apart as the apostle to do all this. God has stewarded his mystery even to this day. All of us have been stewarded and guided to the point that we are at right now, this morning, in these pews. Right? Paul begins with his own appeal to himself and his ministry because he was their pastor at one point. He's saying, I have loved you and served you. I am saying as an elder of, uh, in this church and your pastor that I love you and want to serve you and care for you. That I hope that I am stewarding this gospel that has been entrusted to the church for millennia now. I hope that I continue to be your pastor and pray for you and encourage your faith. That is God's appointment for me right now. And 
we have a unique situation the way the Lord has called us to be together. And so there are other apostles, well, not apostles, there are other men in this presbytery who faithfully come here when I can't be here. I am so thankful that Mitch, uh, pastor of Brent Presbyterian Church, will pretty much always say yes if I ask him to preach, unless somebody else stole him before I got there. But he's always ready to be here because he loves you. He's a steward of the gospel of Christ revealed now for you. God has blessed us with giving us faithful teachers. And I'll do a brief aside here because it does just refer to the apostolic ministry. It's talking about Paul, who's an apostle, and he references uh, prophets and apostles. But since it's Mother's Day, the apostle Paul recognized the importance of mothers in being stewards of the gospel when he writes a letter to his young uh, mentee, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, he talks about the faith that is at work in Timothy's life and how wonderful it is and how he praises him for it, but it was a faith that was at work first in his mother and his grandmother, and they're named. That doesn't happen. If you get named in the Bible, that's a big deal, and their, their names are there to this day. Mothers, you have an important task. I have, I've, I've met plenty of people, and it's true in my own life too, that if, they, if they've referenced their father being a, an important figure in their faith story, that's wonderful, but sadly it's an exception. When I hear about it, it's, it really is impressive, and there, there's something wonderful about that. And I, I, maybe it'll be a challenge for fathers on Father's Day to, to make that part of the inheritance you leave your children to be active in their lives. But I have always met somebody who people, and the, the more common response is, my mother was a huge impact on my faith. I saw her pray for me. I saw her sing in choir. I saw her do this or that. And mothers, thank God if you dragged your kids to church. When I was, when I was doing youth ministry, I had a, a woman who I loved dearly, and I loved her son. He was 13 and, and definitely starting to push back at mom for making him wake up and go to church. And she came to me one day really upset because he wasn't there. And she goes, I just, I don't know what to do. And I said, so what happens on Sunday morning? She goes, well, Sunday morning, I, I get up and I go there and I prod him and I say, all right, time to go to church. And I said, and then what happens? And she goes, he says no. And I'm like, and then what happens? She goes, I leave. And I said, don't leave. He doesn't have a choice. He's 13. Grab him by his ankle. Drag him out. That is what you have done if you've done it with your kids. If you've dragged them to church and they're still walking with the Lord, it was faithful and a way to steward the gospel to them. But I'm reminded of this too. We have, we have been blessed. You know, our church is almost 200 years old now. And we have been blessed with men constantly filling this pulpit, constantly preaching uh, year after year. You've been blessed with elders and deacons. You've been blessed with saintly women. God has not abandoned the church, local churches across the, con- the country and the world. He constantly brings people gifted and set apart for for this work of preaching the gospel of being stewards of this mystery but we have to go through what what the content of the mystery is because this is the gospel mysterious like why is it a mystery so look at me uh, with me at verses three through six paul wrote how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as i have written briefly which he's probably referring back to just the the latter part of Ephesians 2. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And here's, here's, here it is. This is the mystery. It's that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you know your Bible, you, are, you may, maybe you're not, but you may be confused about this. Why is this a mystery? The Gentiles were always going to be part and worship God's, you know, worship the creator God with God's people. I mean, that, that's Genesis old. When God calls Abram, he says, I will make of you a great nation and all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. It was already embedded there that as Israel was pulled out and set apart as a holy people to the Lord, but they're a kingdom of holy priests. They're continually supposed to be bringing God's light to the nations. And when we get to Isaiah, he certainly, think about when we get to uh, Easter, or Easter, that just happened, when we get to Christmas time and Advent, and we're reflecting on Isaiah 9, or we're singing, you know, Handel or something like that, we, sing, we see in Isaiah 9 that there is this prophecy of Galilee of the nations, and people who dwelt in darkness upon them, a great light has shone. There is hope that the Gentiles would come and be part of God's people. And in Zechariah, in chapter 8, in this vision of the future glory and, and deliverance of the people and the restored kingdom and, and God winning over all of his enemies, there's this vivid depiction of Gentiles grabbing onto Jews, pleading, take us up to the Mount Zion to worship Yahweh. So the Old Testament speaks about this constantly. How is that mysterious? This seems like it should have been completely obvious. But if it's so obvious, it, it does, still doesn't make sense because Paul lays it out. He says this mystery is revealed, and, and you know, not only has it been revealed, and, uh, but, it, but it wasn't made known the same way. And so here's the mystery. Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. Gentiles are members of the same body as the Jews. And Gentiles are partakers of the same promises to the Jews because of Jesus Christ. And that might sound exactly like those prophecies that we were just hearing about. But the issue isn't that the Gentiles are included in the people of God. The issue and the mystery is that they're on equal footing with the Jews. You see, there is this possibility, and a lot of commentators have wrestled with this, because what's going on? This seems weird. This is like the worst kept secret in the, in the gospel, because this is all the Old Testament has been pointing to. What is happening. And so many have concluded that when you read other portions, so like when, when I just talked about Zechariah, in Zechariah 8, you know, there's that great depiction of the Gentiles grabbing onto Jews, pleading to go up to the temple. But at the end of Zechariah, when all the nations are under the Davidic king's rule and they're coming to Jerusalem, they're bringing tribute, they're bringing gold, but it's, it's, not, it's not just for worship. It's what vassal kings do. They're paying their dues. They're paying their, their uh, riches to the superior king. They're, they're, not, they're not fully on the same level as Jews. And even during Paul and Jesus' time, 
We have plenty of Gentiles who are called God-fears, people that had been taken by Yahweh, had been you know, touched by the Holy Scriptures and the story of God's redemption, but they're not exactly allowed to be full Jews. They could participate in synagogue. They could go to a certain court at the synagogue, but, or at the temple, but they couldn't go any further. They're second-class citizens. See, that, that's the mystery, is that Paul is saying it's not enough just to be included. You have to be equal. Uh, to, you, to illustrate this with something that is quite sensitive to our national history, but uh, Abraham Lincoln, who many people know as you know, the president of the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, he freed the slaves. This is usually the narrative that you are taught in school was. We continue to be further and further away from his legacy. Historians have gone back and reevaluated certain parts of Abe Lincoln's views about the African Americans. Uh, he was actually not for their full equality. He definitely did not like slavery. He was a vicious opponent of it, but he thought the best means and course of action would be that once the African Americans were uh, freed, that they actually be sent away to Haiti. And they even experimented uh, with this. He actually did do this, and it was a complete disaster. Um, and he had to go rescue the people he sent there. But in 1862, the same year, right before the Emancipation Proclamation, he summoned a delegation of black leaders to the White House to have a secret meeting. And it was a meeting about what will happen to the massive population of slaves in the South once they're freed. What are we going to do with these people? And this is what Abraham Lincoln was recorded as saying to the black delegation. Your race suffer from living among us while ours suffers from your presence. It is better for us both, therefore, to be separated. Abe Lincoln, the guy that you learned did a great work in the Emancipation Proclamation, which is a good work, but he didn't, he didn't want full equality. He wanted separation. It's great that you have your freedom, but just don't be around me. This is kind of what is happening here. The Gentiles and the Gentile and Jew divide was that equally a big deal. These people and groups hated one another traditionally. And now what Paul is hammering at, and this is the mystery that is revealed in verse 6, that they are you know, inheritors of the same gospel, that they share the same body. There's an echo here to the previous verses of 19 of uh, Ephesians 2, 19 and through 22, where he says that, so then you, he's speaking to the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And what is the profound content of this mystery, what was so jaw-dropping, wasn't that Gentiles got to worship God. It was that they didn't have to follow the Mosaic law to do so. That's what Paul wrote in 2, 14 through 15. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one. Gentiles and Jews are now one and broken down in his flesh, 
the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Gentiles, you do not have to be circumcised when you come into the church. You do not have to keep the food laws when you come into the church. You now have the freedom to do these things and still be called the people of God, and you're not second rate. You are sharing in the body. You're sharing all these promises. All of this gospel goodness is yours by faith through Jesus Christ. So I'll end with this point, and it's a question. Why all the mystery? When you think of mystery, I mean, you either think of detective novels, or maybe you're familiar with some things going on in this uh, region, this time in history. There are things called mystery religions. They were kind of, they could be very similar to cults today. They had very secretive beliefs, very odd beliefs, usually very ritualistic. Uh, or you may think of, you know, popular mysticism. I mean, people having spiritual encounters, you know, the person wearing crystals and, you know, meditating and, and things like that. But that, that's not happening at all here. Uh, mystery in the gospel does not equal mysticism. Andrew uh, Bonner, uh, a great Scottish uh, minister, once spoke with a man who told him that uh, during an illness that this man was having, he had an angelic encounter, and the angel actually touched him. And Andrew remarked to him, Sir, do you have a cat in the house? Don't you think it may have been the cat that touched you? And growing up in uh, Pentecostalism that leads very hard towards mysticism and, and, and we'll talk about angelic experiences or uh, being given insight and, and revelations. Uh, I've, I've had plenty of odd encounters and my favorite one was growing up, we went to this big uh, teen event every summer and there was a very close-knit group of us, it was four of us and one of us, uh, my friend, he was going through a really difficult time, and so we were praying together at a worship service. And we're Pentecostals, we have to understand, prayer is a free-for-all, hand-to-hand sport. I mean, people will just come up and start laying hands on you, and you just, when you grow up in it, you just get used to it. And as we're praying kind of in a circle, you know, holding one another, I realized somebody else put their hands on me, and it was this girl who I did not know. But I went with it. She's, she felt led to pray for us. So when we get done praying, and we're all kind of teary-eyed, and uh, we had been praying, like I said, for one of the people in this circle. The person was next to me. The girl was equally crying, and we all kind of realized, you know, she was standing there, and she said, the Lord has given me a revelation that the person you are praying, you were praying for is with Jesus now. She's okay. She's fine, and she's resting with, with God. And we all said okay, and kind of bit our lips, and thanks for that, because First of all, it wasn't a girl, it was a boy. And second of all, he better not be dead because he was standing right next to us. That's not mysterious. That's not revelation. That's not what's being discussed here. Mystery, revelation in the Bible is knowledge, or sorry, mystery in the Bible is knowledge that can only be learned through revelation of the Holy Spirit to appointed ministers or people. We don't see this just hopping around to everybody, right? Paul is one of the, gets this revelation from whom? Jesus. And then who else do we see get insight into this gift to the Gentiles? Peter. It was, it was not just anybody. It was a steward 
of the mysteries of the gospel who's been given this insight to then make use of it and share it with the church. And in our day, we have to ask ourselves, is our religion our own creation? Is it based on the way we see things, our philosophy, or the world's ideologies? Or is it truly a revelation from God? I saw, and I'll, this kind of how I'll close, but I saw this, uh, I follow this guy on Instagram, which is crazy, but it's apologetics. And apparently, I'm just learning this, but TikTok and Instagram are creating kind of a a revival or a reformation of apologetics. It's reaching a generation that I certainly can't. But this guy has a very creative way of doing apologetics, where he'll share videos that people have posted and just apply logic and biblical insight to them. And uh, he did one this past week of a person who was mystical. They're trying to basically say that all religions are true and here is why. And they, they walked through the, these things of, you know, all religions are true because they all kind of teach the same thing. Be kind, be, you know, be a servant, do acts of mercy. Uh, they're all true because they all do the same practices. I mean, they all require something like we're all gathered together. Well, so are a lot of other religions. We have sacred scriptures. So do other religions. But as he, he goes back through this, he, one of the things he points out is, our religion, our faith, the Christian gospel is given to us by divine revelation, and we see how it is not similar. And one of the key points was the way he talked about it. All these other religions, he said, teach the same thing. It's basically a shared philosophy of just be kind. And a lot, he even could have pointed to, you know, doesn't Jesus say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? I mean, treat people the way you want to be treated. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins on the cross, not while you were good, not while you were doing the right practices, not even while you were believing the right thing, but because you weren't believing the right thing, because you were doing the wrong things, because you were a sinner, he sent his Son to die for you so that he could win you to himself through his son's blood sacrifice on the cross. And that makes no sense. No philosophy came up with that. Nobody just thought that's a really telling and compelling story. That is revelation. That is why it strikes hearts so much. That is why it continues to challenge worldly religions and philosophies because they all have to work along the same footing of how can we just get people to mentally assent to all this? This is something that is beyond mental assent. It is mind-blowing, the gracious depth that God has for you in his Son. It is a mystery given to us by stewards of mystery for a revelation to bring us the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you have given us uh, this grace of a mystery, that you would unite people groups that hated one another through the work of your Son on the cross, that you would unite people that hate you that were enemies at the right time you sent your son to die, the godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous, the saint for the sinner. That's a mystery. That's a revelation. That's something we pray we never get tired of because it's the only way we will have life. It is the only way we can have hope. It is a joyful mystery to be celebrated and proclaimed. May we do so today and all throughout this week that we would share the mystery 
of your gospel with those who do not know it. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand. I really hope this isn't a curveball. Jonathan brought up about my curveballs again. I don't think it's a curveball. I grew up singing this hymn. But please stand as we sing hymn 478, I Love to Tell the Story. <laughs> 